morning. I was reading a couple of months ago about a 13th century theologian and preacher who preached 99 sermons on the book of Lamentations and never got out of chapter 1. Be thankful I'm not competitive. So we come again to this book of Lamentations and we, I want to read from right near the end from chapter 5, verse 1 and then the last eight verses. And that's why I can't see anything. That's better. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crowd has fallen, crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are sick. Because of these things, our eyes have grown dim. Because of Mount Zion, which lies desolate, Jackals prowl over it. But you, O oh Lord, reign forever. Hang on, we've gone too far. Yes. But you, O oh Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why have you forgotten us completely? Why have you forsaken us? these many days. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, even if you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, the people of the tiny kingdom of Judah rebelled against the massive Babylonian superpower. Needless to say, the Babylonians were unhappy with this. They sent their army to besiege Jerusalem. After 18 horrific months, the Babylonians captured Jerusalem, did terrible things to the people, then, then totally destroyed it. The people of Jerusalem tried everything they could to save their city and its people, but to no avail. As a last resort, they prayed to God, who heard their prayer, saw their plight, and decided to act. He snapped his fingers, and immediately the entire Babylonian army ran terrified back to Babylon. God snapped his fingers a second time, and all the buildings were instantly restored, including a bright new shiny temple. God snapped his fingers a third time, and all the people were healed of all their mental and physical pain and suffering, and they lived happily ever after. Ah. <laughs> Don't expect an ending like that as we come to the last two chapters of this book called Lamentations. Lamentations is no fairy story. Instead, it faces us 
with reality. A fortnight ago, we looked at the astonishing words of hope and assurance at the very heart of chapter 3. And we may have hoped this book would have ended and they lived happily ever after, but it doesn't. The pain and the agony continues. Once again, we're faced with the horrors of the prolonged siege of Jerusalem and the awful climax when the Babylonians invaded the city, hunted down its people, captured King Zedekiah, taking out his eyes and putting him into a pit. The suffering was by no means over and the exile to Babylon was about to begin. A fortnight ago, I briefly shared some of the pain and um, darkness that Janet and I went through over a period of 11 and a half years. This morning, I want to focus in on one of those events. It started with a standard, very routine blood test, which showed I had dangerously low numbers of things called blood platelets, although I felt perfectly well. I was immediately put on a very high dose of the steroid prednisone. And a few days later, spent 24 hours in hospital as a precaution. Overall, I spent 17 days on that very high dose of prednisone, which was bad enough. But then I had to be very carefully taken off it. For the next seven long weeks, every Saturday morning, I would reduce the dose by a small amount. And around about lunchtime, I started suffering a completely new set of horrible mental and physical withdrawal symptoms. Janet had a part-time job on Saturdays and would come home every week to find a different husband. That she put up with me was amazing. During those seven weeks, I yelled at God, I lamented, I cried, I felt abandoned by God. My prayers seemed to go unanswered, as did the prayers of those who prayed for me. Physically and especially mentally and spiritually, I was becoming a real mess. I feel for those people of Jerusalem in Lamentations chapter 4, where we come back to the reality of a city in total devastation, a people in subhuman de um, degradation. Hope may lie in the future, but the present was unrelieved agony, which is summed up in the words, Thanks. <laughs> which was summed up in the words, the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his, fear, his hot anger and kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. They knew that they deserved what they got. As a nation, they had sinned greatly. Just read the books of Kings and Chronicles and you'll see it. They've been warned by the prophets over many generations and now they were suffering because of their sin and their stupidity. In my darkness and suffering, 
I struggled with trying to understand what God was doing with me. Certainly, Paul in his letters talks of suffering as being a context for character growth. And people like Joseph and Moses develop gifts through suffering, but then why did Job suffer? I had no idea what God was doing. But later I certainly found I had a growing empathy for the mental health clients I was working with. But that surely could have come in much easier ways. Maybe one day I'll, I'll understand what God is doing. In the meantime, I was in the dark, struggling to hold on to my faith and my hope in God, along with the hope that when I had taken my last dose of prednisone, the symptoms would go, as the health professionals had assured me. In the last verse of Lamentations chapter 4 is a single line of assurance for the people of Jerusalem. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. The judgment had been delivered. The punishment fully carried out. And yes, the exile had just begun, but it would not last forever. And so the chapter ends with this tiny wisp of slender hope. But remember this. In the Bible, the power of hope lies not in the quantity of words that express it, but in the character of the one in whom that hope is placed. And that is why in chapter 5 is a prayer that addresses God directly and continues to do so until the end of the book. Of course, prayer has been a part of this book since chapter 1. But until now, it's only been a short outburst of desperation and exhaustion. In chapter 5, the poet leads the people in a sustained act of prayer. The poet sets out the realities of the, the dire situation in which the people now exist. The struggle just to survive in the face of the constant harassment of the occupying forces. The shame of cruel and degrading treatment in the hands of the enemy. The deep and darkened sorrow of the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. And then he recalls the prophetic word of hope that ended chapter 4 and his earlier glimpses of the abiding faithfulness and mercy of God from chapter 3 before turning these, these both into a final appeal to God that he does not abandon them forever. The poet calls on God to remember. Remember is a word that links back to the exodus from Egypt. When God remembers, it's not that God has forgotten. Rather, it means that God will now take the action on the matter that he chooses to remember. So when the Israelites groaned and cried out in Egypt, their cry for help because of their slavery went to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites, took notice of them, and eventually brought them out of Egypt. 
Would it be possible that the God of the Israelites could do the same now? Even though they know that their suffering is suffused with God's judgment on their sin, could not God not in mercy look and see and remember and act? That much at least could be hopeful. Could there not also be an exodus in the future? And so the poet prays, Remember, O Lord, look and see. Look and see that the social life of the community has been destroyed from top down to the bottom. That there's no functioning leadership or of governance and no joyful celebration of music by the youth. Israelite society had effectively come to a dead end. Apart from the sobs of the raped, the groans of the hanged, and the grasping of the overloaded, there's nothing but the silence of a whole culture trembled underfoot. The only form of song left for the people is lament. Verse 18 summons up the catastrophe of the whole book that has told the death knell to Israel's land, Israel's city, Israel's king, Israel's temple, Israel's faith, Israel itself as the covenant people of God. All has collapsed, all has ended, all has gone. Mount Zion lies desolate. Jackals, scavengers prowl over it. And Israel's God... Well, this is a prayer, a prayer addressed to you, O Lord, at the start and near the end. You, O Lord. The words are emphatic. It's as if a great but is highlighted on the page. After all that verse 18 condenses of a physical, national, emotional, and theological pain, the people turn to the one that they know the God of their history, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, to Yahweh, the one who is still there. They turn to him precisely because they know that this desolation is the work of his hands. And so the prayer reaches an astonishing leap of faith across the chasm of defeat, a leap of faith over the destruction and death. It's a prayer of lament that reaches out from the ruins of God's dwelling place on earth and touches the eternal throne of God in heaven. After all, who do you, did the Babylonians think they defeated? Surely, rebellious Jerusalem? Why had they pledged, destroyed, and burnt Jerusalem's temple? Surely to show the victory of the gods of Babylon over, so they thought, some minor god of, J of Judah. But the reality was so totally and so completely different. Who had destroyed the temple of Yahweh? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, but behind him was the hand of God. Israel's God had destroyed his own temple, unthinkable to many, but not to those who were being led in prayer by the poet of Lamentations. For if it was true, then this is ultimately good news, for God himself remained on his throne, a throne that, unlike his temple, 
is indestructible. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Throughout my life, I've always believed that God is on his throne. And he that God is the God of incredible love is in control. And no matter what happens in life, no, what happen, no matter what happens to me, the good, the bad, the plain ordinary, God somehow, even if I can't understand how, God somehow is in charge. And he is ultimate good. Yes, at times, and especially through those seven long weeks, I struggled to keep that belief. Much of the time, I was only clinging on by the briefest of fingernails. But here is the foundation of hope. Even if it can't summon up hope's reality, God is still on his throne. But there is a question that needs an answer. The question of verse 20 is this. Will God remember his own? Even when every admission of sin has been made, even when every acceptance of God's judgment has been spoken, the days are long, the pain seems unending. The question why is addressed to you, O Lord, and the agony of this question lies in the pain of a broken relationship, but not in rela a relationship so redeemably severed that it no longer exists at all. Why have you forgotten us completely? Why have you forsaken us these many days? Are the last questions of the book, and they get no answer. God does not explain the prophets have done that already. God does not set a time limit on his judgments. Other prophets will do that. The questions hang frozen in the air, challenging the frozen present, the unbearable now of bearing the judgment of God in the day of his anger. So when the question is left unanswered, all that is left is a final appeal. Up to now, the appeals have been addressed to God, seeking to get his attention, to draw him into the situation. Here, the appeal is different. It's not for God to come down and see them, but rather it's for God to cause the people to return to him. They do not ask for their enemies to be driven away, nor for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, not even for an end to their suffering. These things can wait. Indeed, they turn to God, to the one which ultimately is most important. They turn to God and plead again to know the presence of God and the assurance of the covenant relationship with him. They acknowledge that any restoration of this relationship must come from God's side. God will cause them to return to him. And so they pray, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we might be restored. As I struggled mentally, physically and spiritually 
I came to a similar place. When all else seemed to have gone, I could only call out to God to bring me back to him. But for the people of Lamentations, it doesn't end there. For there's no question that God has rejected his people and is exceedingly angry with them. They are reaping what they had sown and have got what they, the law and the prophets threatened. And so the last verse is an acceptance of God's truth about the facts of their situation. The poet leads his people to pray the appeal. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we might be restored. Renew our days as of old, even if you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. He prays that even in the face of truth acknowledged in the last verse, that it might somehow not be true while fearing that it might be and probably is. The affirmation that God reigns forever. The prayer of restoration and renewal come from the center of the storm that has not yet abated. Even if in God's mercy the future may hold relief and restoration, the present is still unbearably painful. This is our reality, says the poet. On behalf of the people, this is our pain. And no matter what lies ahead in the sovereignty of God, we will make sure you hear and see and know that we have gone through here and now. And so Lamentations ends where it began. But it does not end as it began. For on the journey through this book, it has allowed the light of what is known about God to penetrate the apparent absence and the silence of God with some rays of truth. The ending of the book is wonderful, for it's astonishing, it's disturbing, it's challenging balance of realities and truths achieved in its final four verses. And yes, it's also truthful affirming the massive majesty of God's redemptive patience, the faithfulness of God in confronting and defeating the ravages of evil and sin, and God's delivering us ultimately from all the suffering they wreak on humanity and on creation. But that's the story the rest of the Bible tells us. Within this story, Lamentations has its place and its voice. Speaking out of the horrors of Jerusalem in 587 BC, it touches the universality of human suffering, whether or not it's deserved by the sufferer. And it ultimately traces back to the global roots of evil, sin and rebellion, both human and satanic. And that story, of course, leads us to and centers on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Both are indissolubly linked together, and each is a vital necessity. We cannot contemplate the cross without knowing of the resurrection to come. But equally, we cannot use our knowledge of the resurrection as a sentimental or escapist way of denying the absolute horror of the cross. 
and the unimaginable depth of suffering that Jesus endured at every level of his divine and human being. But in between Good Friday and Easter Day stands Saturday, the literal dead time when the agony of Good Friday has done its worst, but God has not yet stretched out his right hand and mighty arm in glorious resurrection power. And that's where Lamentations positions Israel in 587 BC, along with all those in Christ who share his suffering in this world, enduring them with ultimate hope, but without present relief. Lamentations is as real as the horrors that fill our news, days, our news day after day. A stabbing in a primary school in Dublin, followed by riots, the continued unrest and the very fragile ceasefire in the Gaza Strip, the ongoing brutality of war in Ukraine. A million people have fled Sudan, and more than six million have been internally displaced. The persistent gun violence in the U.S. And so it goes on and on. The list is long of the universal suffering of our world as a result of sin. But God reigns forever. His throne endures through all generations, even our own. God is faithful and just, and we must keep our hope in him, calling to mind his faithfulness in the past, trusting in the future, where God will put all things right and sin will be no more. And in the present, our prayer must be that he would restore us to himself, bringing us always closer to him. In the meantime, like all of us who suffer in the darkness, like Janet and I did over those 11 and a half years, especially those seven weeks, like Jennifer who shared her experience of long COVID last Sunday in the combined service at Parklands, like Christ on Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, like Israel at the end of Lamentations who remained at the land of exile and death. In all these, we wait patiently, trusting in God, whose steadfast love never ceases, whose mercy never comes to an end, for great is his faithfulness. Resurrection has not yet been heralded. Easter day has not yet dawned. But it will. It will. Again, as we've done of the previous weeks. Let's spend a couple of minutes in silent prayer and reflection as we begin to process what God has been saying to us this morning and then I'll lead in prayer. Let's pray, let's reflect.
Almighty God, we call you our loving Heavenly Father. Even though there are times when it seems hard to believe it, and yet, especially at times like this, we can and we must. And so we thank you that your word in the Bible allows and encourages us to pour out our grief and our pain to you, and even gives us words to do so. Help us to turn to you for comfort and strength, for forgiveness and for salvation. Cause us each one to grow closer to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, who died for us, rose again, and will return to put all things right, we pray. Amen. <laughs>